we look at another miracle this morning. That's this series, Matthew 17, 24 through 27. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, Yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he had said from others, Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free. However, not to give an offense to them, go to the sea, cast a hook, and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourselves. Hear the word of the Lord. Some look at the miracles in the Bible and they say, that didn't happen. Others look at these stories in the Bible and they say, that couldn't happen. As we come to this whopper of a fish story from the New Testament this morning, let me tell you a story from Liberia, recounted by missionaries with the Sudan Interior Mission or SIM International after they branched out all over the world from Sudan. A Muslim man was married to a woman who came to place her faith in Christ. Uh, he had other consorts outside of the relationship and had a pattern of striking her as his wife. She desired to go to a women's conference and she informed him that she was going to go. It was a Bible conference for ladies and she was going to be gone for a few days and incensed, he very much responded against her leaving. Who's going to take care of the house? Who will look after me? Who's going to cook my meals? And in rage, he beat her. He put her out of the house. On her way out of the house, he got into her personal belongings and he took away her key to the house that lived by a river in this city in Liberia. And he threw the key in the river. She went away to the conference. He locked up the house and went to his adulterous place for the days that she was going to be gone. She knew on Friday he would be back at the mosque for Friday prayers and be home at an appointed hour after they let out. And she conceived in her mind, coming back into town from the conference, that what she would do is she would go to the market and she would make the best meal that she could and have it ready, but how could she get back in the house? She thought, I'll make the meal at the neighbor's when he comes in, then I'll bring the meal over. And so she went to the market, bought a couple of fish, came to her neighbor's home and she was preparing the meal in the dish and she began to treat the fish and cut it open. And when she cut the fish open, she found a key in the fish's stomach. The neighbor said to her, that looks like the key to your house. Could it ever be? Well, uh, they tried it, and to their astonishment, it was the key. She went in, finished making the meal in the kitchen, 
got the best flatware out she could, set the table, had candles, and was ready to receive him as he came in. He came in in rage, believing the neighbor lady had let her in. And he sat down at the table, aggressively confronting her with the affront of her in his house. And she told him the story. He got silent. He ate the meal and sulked the rest of the night in the chair. He said nothing. He said nothing to her all the next day. And to her astonishment on Saturday night, he said, I want to go to your church tomorrow. To her further astonishment, on the way to church, he said, I want to talk to your pastor after the service is over. And when the service was over, no one knew what to expect. And the pastor sat down with him, and he said this, I want to serve the God of Christians. He is the one who knows and can do what no one else can do. And he gave his life to our Lord. And the marriage was healed. It was different. The power of Jesus changes lives. It always does. Christ does such things to humble us and show us himself. Will we let him show us today? I want to go two different directions with this message on Matthew 17 and this account. First, I want to make two observations about the miracle that will help us crawl into this history. And then second, what difference does this miracle make to us as we go out to live this week? Remember, the miracles are windows that Jesus installed through which you and I can get an idea what kind of king this is and what his kingdom is like. And we need to embed this picture this look out the window of Jesus in our hearts this morning. First, two observations that help us crawl into the history of this fish catch miracle. We need this to get this story to live in our conscience. First, the temple tax that's discussed here, the temple tax was a source of conflict among first century Jews. It was a source of conflict let me explain. Now, this account is only listed here in Matthew. It's not in Mark, Luke, or John. It's only here. Now, fancy that. The tax collector, including this story about the collection of the temple tax. Now, the temple tax stems from Exodus 30, verses 11 through 16, where Moses said, now look. We need to invest in some poles that will carry the tabernacle around from place to place. And so let's take an offering to get this done. And they do. But after that asset was secured, then the temple tax was used to maintain the confines of the temple. But there was a difference of opinion in the first century among Jewish people about what to do with this temple tax. Some found the temple tax a great 
measure of patriotic pride. They got to give the gift to care for the temple and keep it doing and keeping, kept it in ship shape. And so for them, it was a matter of national pride to pay the temple tax. For the Sadducees, who were always off on their own thoughts in Jewish circles, they said, no, absolutely not. We're not paying, and that temple tax is not due. The Essenes, uh, the leftover from the quorum community, while well, they said, well, adult men must pay it one time in their lifetime, that's all. So there's this raging debate, and they were always trying to pull Jesus into the debate and beat him over the head with some disagreement. So they're back in Capernaum. This is after the transfiguration, which you'll remember, Matthew 17, is kind of the midpoint of Jesus' ministry, a year and a half in. And so they're at, kind of at the halfway point. They don't get the cross yet. He begins to tell them, hey, I'm going to the cross and I'm going to die. He's been presenting himself as the king and they're trying to figure this all out. And they're back at Peter's house. The disciple band is staying at Peter's house. In fact, it appears that Jesus was inside the house with other members of the band. But Peter is coming through Capernaum to his own house and he's stopped by the temple tax collector. And the question is asked, does your teacher not pay the tax? Notice the inference from the question is, aha, gotcha. I bet Jesus doesn't pay this tax. Again, trying to draw him into this debate and the argument. What about Jesus? Well, any way you answer that question is going to make you a person in disagreement with others. But they tried to draw him in to this patriotic fight over whether or not the temple tax ought to be paid. Now, the second observation is this is the only miracle that is anticipated, but whose results are not described in the text. The narrative of Peter's fishing is not here. What you have is simply Jesus' words, Peter, here are the instructions. You go take a fishing line, put a hook on it, drop it in. The first fish you catch will have a shackle for us and we'll pay our tax in that way. So it's anticipated, but the description of the event is not here. 1 Kings 8.56, there has not failed one word of his good promise. This happened because Jesus said it would happen, but the happening is actually not recorded by Matthew. That's interesting. Now, this sets us up to explore the story. What does this miracle narrative to, then, what does this miracle narrative tell us about our matchless Savior, Jesus. What does this tell us about him? This window into the nature of the kingdom presents three realities that we must embrace. Reality number one, Jesus Christ avoided offense when it was possible. You say, Eric, how was this thing resolved? I'll tell you how it was resolved. Jesus pondered the way forward that was going to, at this moment, not create an offense. He says in verse 27 to Peter, however, not to give offense to them, 
go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. When you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. The words of Jesus. However, not to give offense. Romans 12, 18 says this, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. I love the realism of the word of God. Here is the apostle Paul who tells us in Romans 12, 18 that as much as is possible, be at peace with all men. Which one inference to draw from that phrase is that it is not possible to be at peace with all men if the other person does not want to be at peace with you. Some people live under the guilt of, well, I'm not reconciled to person A or person B. We cannot be unilaterally reconciled to a person who's unwilling to be reconciled to us. And that's important that we don't live under a pile of guilt that we don't deserve, if possible. So far as it depends on you, the whole relationship does not exclusively and 100% of the time depend upon us. Relationships are two-way streets, and both ends of the streets have to be working for that. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. But on the great day, all of us want to act in such a way that we can at least say, as much as was within me, I sought to live at peace with others. That's easier to say than it is to do when we've been hurt so bad by others. Live peaceably with that person? Are you kidding me? That's the call of following Jesus. Matthew 5, 9, in the Beatitudes, blessed are the peacemakers. It doesn't say blessed are the warmongers. It says blessed are the peacemakers. For they shall be called the sons of God. You ever seen a little boy who uh, walks? Uh, our daughter-in-law recently told me, she said, uh, look, look at them. Look how they walk. And, and, and our grandson had just put his boots on, and he was walking to the mailbox with his dad. He said, look, look there, look. It says, there goes Eric Mounts and another Eric Mounts right to the mailbox. And um, I didn't ask her if that was a compliment or an insult. I was afraid to ask. But I reproduce after my kind, and he reproduced after his, just like his father. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. You know, God makes peace. That's who he is. His children are peacemakers. Jesus conducted his life so as to avoid offense when the truth was not on the line. You might say, hey, Eric, wait a minute. Isn't this the Jesus that turned over the tables on the religious leaders in the temple area? Yes, it was. You say, well, that, that, I think that caused an offense. What are you saying with this point? Notice that he was unabashed in confronting religious sham. But when it came to treating others, honest folks seeking to understand who he was, he was not into causing offense. His life didn't represent this offense and that offense and that offense and that offense. 
Jesus Christ avoided offense when it was possible. Now, remember, he even said in Matthew twenty two twenty one, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and unto God the things that are God. Now, here's why I've stopped on this point, reflecting upon this phrase in verse 27. Not to give offense to them. I fear that there's a new emerging attitude in gospel faith in America. For lack of a better term, and trying to characterize it, I'd call it the D. Snyder twisted sister, we're not going to take it anymore school of discipleship. In 1984, this crazy rock group made a song right as MTV music videos were taking off, and it was an iconic video of rebellion against parental authority. We're not going to take it. I was going to play a few minutes of you, but I, I really desired to have a future with you in ministry. And so... Um, we're not going to take it anymore. In the video, Dee Snyder comes upstairs to the boy's room playing his guitar, and his mother has scolded him already, and she's left, and, and, and the father comes in, and they just make fun of the father's authority in the home and the father seeking to lead his son. And, and Snyder beats open the door, and the father's talking to his son behind the door, and the father kind of gets stuck on the door as if the clothes rack where he hung his clothes had kind of pierced the father, and he's like a rag doll in the back of the door, and Snyder's just opening and closing the door. We're not going to take it anymore. Well, I sense that gospel people in America have felt the culture has turned against them. You know, they don't like not living in Warden June Cleaver's neighborhood anymore, and it feels different and flummoxed. We don't know what to do, so it's, we, we must adopt the attitude and the spirit of D. Snyder. We're not going to take it anymore. You can go to some places, and, and, and they're all but putting blue and white makeup on their face. And as soon as the benediction is over, they yell, freedom, and they're running out the door, grabbing a hold of the first pagan they find and straightening them out. We should be courageous for the truth in our age. And we must be. By the way, I look forward to the introduction of our summer series. It's going to be a great series on Wednesday nights where we learn how to live in this complex age, reflecting our Lord. One of the things we need to think about is our spirit in engagement of this ungodly culture wherein we stick out as shining lights before a watching world. How do, how do we do it? Obviously, I'm making the argument that D. Snyder and William Wallace won't help us as much as Jesus. Jesus never pulled any punch with anyone. But he was always judicious and how he related to others are we. This story teaches us that Jesus avoided offense when it was possible. Courage to stand in our day? Absolutely. Belligerent, nasty, offensive, and caustic? No. Meek and lowly, omnipotent Jesus, how did he choose to do it? He chose not to create an offense in this circumstance. 
And when it is possible, that's the way of Jesus. We all know it's not always possible. We named our son Benjamin Warfield Mounts. Benjamin Warfield in 1887 was hired by Princeton Seminary in their best days of orthodoxy to teach. He loved two things. The Word of God, he wrote a book called The Inspiration Authority of the Word of God, and in all the arguments in the last 70 years about the Bible, it was all just footnotes on what Warfield had read about the integrity of God's holy word. But he also loved his wife, who became on their honeymoon an invalid when they were in Leipzig, Germany, and he nursed her and cared for her tenderly all her days. You know, Isaiah used the names of his children to say something to the culture, and Andy and I wanted to do that, and Isaiah had a son called Mishmash Shalahazbaz, and we didn't like that name, so we decided Benjamin Warfield Mounts, telling the culture the word of God is worth it, and loving your wife is what God intended all along. But trying to help him understand the glory of his name, we planned a trip, and so we went out to Princeton. And we're with the archivist in the library. And uh, I realized after the fact that he was probably a little too young to enjoy it. But he's like 11 years old. And we're sitting with the archivist at Princeton Theological Seminary in there. And, you know, I, I mean, I, I, I'm, you know, I, I, I'm holding back tears and finding this just an incredible family moment, a wonderful moment. And, you know, Ben's just there. And we're all the children, are, you know, Caleb and you know, his sister going, you know, when was this going to be over, Dad? You know, but anyway, um, the archivist went through his whole life. It was really cool. He was a good sketch artist. And uh, one time in college when he was at Princeton University, he was in chapel and he sketched a guy seated across from him. And then he flashed it and some people thought it was a funny sketch. Well, the guy got upset. And there was a little bumping into each other and a little rumble after chapel. And so they called him the pugilist, the fighter. That was his nickname in the yearbook, that college that year. They did it to make sport of him, the P Benjamin Warfield, the pugilist. And so we get done with the whole thing, you know, and, and I got a big knot in my throat. And I thought, this is an iconic moment for our son who's really appreciating his name. And so the archivist, a, a, a venerable old man, said, now, do you have any questions? And I thought, now I'm really going to figure out what, what Ben got out of it. And he said, yeah, hey, will you tell me that part again about when he got in a fight after chapel? I want to hear that again. You know, I was like, oh, maybe he was just a little too young to appreciate this moment. What should we put underneath our picture in this cultural moment? Gospel Christians, pugilists. Is that what we should put? This story teaches us that Jesus Christ avoided offense when it was possible. Secondly, Jesus Christ exercises minute control over the affairs of men. His instructions to Peter must have been foreign. Peter was a corporate fisherman with Zebedee and Sons, Inc. They fished the same way all the time. They got their nets. They threw them over the side. They drew up the nets in gathering their fish. Jesus says, you go take a line and a hook. That's... What the poor people did, not the big corporate fishermen in the Sea of Galilee, but he found what, what are the odds uh, of hitting the lotto? Maybe you 
thought of that this week when in disguise you bought all your Powerball tickets, you know, for the drawing whenever it was. Uh, the odds of hitting the lotto are 1 in 176 million. What are the odds of catching this fish? Think of what it would take. Think of the miracle that was involved. Somebody lost a shekel. It had to be the right coin. The shekel was equal to two drachma. You say, I don't know a drachma from a shekel for nothing. Well, the temple tax was every male had to pay one drachma. So if Peter, in this conversation, had committed Jesus to paying the temple tax, for he and Jesus, they needed two drachma. Now, another thing is that Jesus was so lowly economically, they didn't have the shekel to pay the temple tax. By the way, that wasn't a problem for Jesus. Isn't that interesting? So somebody has to lose the right coin, the shekel. There are 23 breeds of fish in the Sea of Galilee, not all of which would have the mouth the size that a shekel could go in the mouth. So it would have to be a particular breed. The odds increase. Then it would have to be a fish that took the shekel in its mouth and kept it in its mouth. Now, when I get something in my mouth, my reflex is to swallow it, especially if I'm going after something else because not only was it held in its snout, the right breed of fish, but it was notwithstanding the shekel and its snout, it went after the hook and was snatched without then in the snatch swallowing the shekel, which was still in the mouth. He pulls it up, the first fish that he caught. By the way, the fish had to be swimming in the right part of the Sea of Galilee. And he pulls the fish up, the one fish that he caught, the first fish that he caught, opened its mouth, there was the shekel, and he says, Peter, just go, go pay the temple tax. What are the odds? Now, theologians uh, have an argument over, all right, is this a miracle of omniscience? Jesus knew the fish that had the shekel in the mouth in the neighborhood, or is it a miracle of omnipotence that the power of Christ brought that particular fish to that particular place with that particular shekel in its particular mouth? Is it a miracle of omniscience or omnipotence? Cannot we argue it's both? Here's Jesus Christ, the creator of everything that is, sovereignly ruling over the affairs of men. Romans 8 and 28, for we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. What are we facing? Whatever it is. And I know that some of you are facing hard things. I was very pleased to let a brother know that the deacons were having a sweet time in prayer, praying for his extended family in this hard moment for them. He wrote back, thanks. About four days later, I just got two words. Pray harder. <laughs> and I knew that the struggle is real and deep. And the struggle ensues this morning as we are here in worship. We're facing stuff. 
God is right in the middle of what we're facing. You've heard the phrase, oh, the devil is in the details. No, that's wrong. Here's what I want you to take away. The Lord is in the details. And that's what this story teaches us. That's what this story teaches us. I sat down with Dan Lichty this week, our general contractor, and we were looking over some things, and we were thinking about where we are and where we're going, and he stopped me, and he's an old sage who's done this, you know, for 40 years. He said, Eric, look, let's just both of us agree on this. We don't control anything. No, he said, there's one more thing we need to agree on. He controls everything. So let's trust him and forge ahead with all of our might. This is where Peter got to, and it's a question before us this morning is, have we gotten there? If we get to the point where we understand that God is at work in even the most minute detail, we can relax in the hammock of God's sovereign care finally. Jesus Christ knows our needs and supplies them according to his will. They're staying at Peter's house in Capernaum. Jesus was not with Peter in this discussion and exchange in verses 24 and 25. Peter comes in the house after having made this conversation. Maybe Jesus is seated at the table. Maybe Peter had one of those first century things above his table that said something like, he is the silent listener to every conversation. Because Peter walks in the house and Jesus says, hey, what do you make of that temple tax? It's like, what? How'd you know what I talked about? How, how, how'd you know we were here? Go fish, take the first fish, it's up, get the shekel. Peter learned all kinds of things around Jesus. Peter learned that God knew what his needs were before Peter did. Matthew 6.32, your heavenly father knows you need them. Can we get that through our heads? You say, Eric, you don't know what I'm facing this morning. Your heavenly father knows you need them. Matthew 6, 8, your father knows what you need before you ask. Philippians 4, 19, my God shall supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. What Peter learned with Jesus eventually shaped his courage and his rest in life as he lived. I grew up in a country church and it had different traditions and different ways it closed the services. Many times, but not every, the service was closed with people praying at the front of the church. And then it was like, well, are we supposed to dismiss the service or do we wait them out? So it developed this tradition where when a person was finished praying, they'd often sit back toward the front, not return to their seat, and we would all be singing. And, and there usually was a canter where they would start a chorus that everybody knew and we'd sing that. And when it was done, somebody else would start one. It was singing back and forth, kind of a sweet thing. And there was a, I thought of a song this week, thinking of this passage, little chorus, my Jesus knows just what I need. My Jesus knows just what I need. My every need he supplies. Oh, yes, my Jesus knows just what I need. Folding that conviction in your heart can reshape how you face life in all of its difficulties. Peter repeatedly encountered the miracles of Christ. Mark 1, Jesus heals his mother-in-law. Mark 
Luke 5, the miraculous catch of fish. Peter, cast us on the other side of the boat. In Matthew, he's enabled to walk on the water. Here, the fish, the coin out of the fish's mouth. On the night of his arrest, Peter cuts off Malchus's ear. And Jesus says, no, put your sword away. And he takes his ear and he heals the ear of Malchus. Wow. Peter saw all of this firsthand. And of course, in Acts 12, he's in prison. Two bands of soldiers watching him and Jesus lets him out of jail. Peter was exposed to a lot of stuff. Is it any wonder that it is Peter who wrote, casting all your care upon him because he cares for you? Nobody's ever walked into this auditorium for worship without having a heart full of care. And this crazy nuts story teaches us that Jesus can be entrusted with the things that are weighing down our heart. The plaintiff, well, from the back seat of the vacation car after you've driven a while, hey, are we there yet? Is a question that this text is asking us this morning. Is that where we are? Where Peter was before he wrote, casting all your care upon him because he cares for us and he's able to do exceedingly and abundantly above and beyond all that we can ask or think. Are you still out saving yourselves? Or are you where Peter was after he had been with Jesus and experienced his miraculous care? Father, I feel badly for what some of our families are going through in this moment, being crushed by circumstances that are hurting them and grieving their heart, and the burdens are great all to commend them and all of us to you. A great Savior. So great it was nothing for you to have the shekel be in the fish's mouth, the one Peter caught, to pay the tax, to prove to Peter that Peter, look, Jesus is sufficient for everything. And so, Lord, we cast our care and ourselves upon you, relishing care for us. Oh, with grateful hearts, with trusting hearts, we come. Help us, Father, be found responsive to you and trusting in you, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.